for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. People of God. Amen. Y'all can be seated. When the church was starting, I had this hope that as a person was a part of our community and they regularly worshipped with our church, that after a period of a couple of months, they would leave a worship gathering and say to a friend, you know what, I just feel so nourished. It's like when you switch from eating junk food all the time to eating healthy food. It's not right away that you feel better. It's kind of a delayed fuse on that. But after a few, a season of weeks and months, uh, my my hope was that people would just feel in their soul and in their hearts, their being like, ah, my nutrients are getting what they need. And and that comes from praying good prayers, from thinking good thoughts and big thoughts about God, from reflecting on the scriptures. Our souls are just given not just bumper sticker ideas of, you know, the gospel, but the meaty stuff that's good for us. And this, this passage in Hebrews chapter 1 is really nutritious. It's really rich. In fact, you may want to keep the text open in front of you, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It's so good. The author of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And so use your biblical imagination and think of what he's talking about or she's talking about. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. You think about the the various times and ways in which God spoke to his people. Your mind might go back to Noah or uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. You might think of uh, Moses and Joshua, Samuel, the judges, uh, David and Solomon, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You might think of some of the poignant metaphors and pictures and symbols that God gave the people of Israel, the ways in which God spoke. Uh, My mind, you know, you go to the rainbow associated with each of these people. Noah, we have the rainbow. We have, um, you know, the land itself, God giving the, the patriarchs this specific land, Israel. I think about that formative moment in Christian and Jewish imagination of Sinai, of of like going through the Red Sea, being delivered from slavery, going to Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. There's the tabernacle, the means by which God can be with his people, later uh, put in Jerusalem and made permanent as the temple. We have the whole sacrificial system. All of this imagery funds our imagination. So when the author says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the various prophets and many times and in various ways, this is what he's talking about. But then he says, but in these last days, so you remember everything that God had done 
through the people of Israel, beginning at creation and leading to, to really to John the Baptist. But in these last days, the, the, the page has turned and a new chapter has begun. This idea of learning a little bit more along the way it can be summarized by the term progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. We learn a bit more as things go on. Uh, I love reading with my kids, and it's really fun. Those moments where there's a, there's a mystery that is later solved, and the kids are like, that's how the author worked it out. All along the way, God has been revealing bit by bit more and more of himself, his intentions for humanity and for all of creation. This is the idea of progressive revelation, pulling back the curtain a little more so we can see in on the great mysteries. And in thinking about the, the nature of progressive revelation and, and uh, how God has chosen to disclose God's self, uh, two things strike me. First is that God is not in a hurry to be fully understood. Duh. This can be a source of, of severe agitation. Uh, you know, why is a very frequent question to God in the Bible. Uh, people don't understand. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do my enemies gloat over me? Uh, but God seems to be unhurried in, in letting the whole plan be known or letting himself, God's self, be fully understood. The second thing that, that, it, that strikes me about the nature of God's revelation is that God seems to understand that the complexities of his own self-disclosure takes time to understand. So even if the whole mystery were to be unveiled to us all at once, we wouldn't be ready for it. And so God prepares his people through warnings and whispers and images and symbols to help us begin to understand what he's up to in the world. And so the prophets and the imagery God gave the people of Israel prepared them for the great unveiling in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus has been unveiled, we're still making sense of, of the complete revelation, the dual natures of Christ, fully God and fully human. That's a mystery we're still getting our heads around. The mystery of the Trinity, especially with the advent of the Holy Spirit, as we'll talk about in a couple weeks, the mystery of the Trinity is still great. We're still getting our heads around this, which is beyond our comprehension. Now, it might seem a bit odd to, uh, to say, but in these last days. The author of Hebrews thought it was in these last days. Aren't you like, man, we're, I'm pretty sure we're pretty far into this book by now. But consider, many scholars date the patriarch Abraham around 2000 BC. He was somewhat around the time of uh, Hammurabi, the Hammurabi's Code. Uh, we have Moses somewhere around 1500 B.C. We have David around 1000 B.C. About every 500 years there seems to be some great moment. The exile of Judah and the destruction of the temple happens in 587, again in about the 500s. And we see over time that God has been leaving this cookie trail of promises for about 2000 years by the time that Jesus comes on the scene. By the time that Jesus is incarnate in the Virgin Mary, uh, the story has already been unfolding for some 2,000 years, not to mention the distance from creation to Jesus, however long that is. And this story is still unfolding. Did, did it stand out to you in any way that we are the same distance from Jesus as Abraham was? 
We are the same distance to Jesus as Abraham was. And so if you struggle to believe or you get irritated with God's patience, you're probably in the same company of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who are waiting to see the totality of God's promises fulfilled. But also remember in looking back that God has proven himself faithful. The text says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's a new chapter whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. This sounds like Colossians chapter 1 too. Uh, The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purifications for sins, he sat dwone, down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. <laughs> Today we're talking about the next phrase in the creed. Uh, he, on the third day he rose and he ascended into heaven. Uh, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now the resurrection is one of my favorite things to preach on ever. I think some of my best preaching that I've done in the four or so years that we've been in church has been on the resurrection. It's a topic that I really love about, and I love it because it's the linchpin of Christian belief. And this morning, what I hope to do is help us feast together on the truth of the resurrection and also share some good news about what Jesus is doing now. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are most of all, we are to be pitied most of all among all people. If Jesus was not actually, literally, bodily raised from the dead, this is an exercise in futility. Jesus was amazing, but ultimately a liar if he was not raised from the dead. If he was raised from the dead, and that's why we say it's the linchpin of our belief, if he was raised from the dead, it validates everything that he said about himself. It validates the whole story that he saw himself and taught others that he was living into, that is the Old Testament. And it also gives us sure hope about the promises for the future that Jesus gave us. It validates the past, the present, and the future if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Generally speaking, it's wise to listen to people who predict their own uh, betrayal, death, and resurrection, and then all of that happens to them. Uh, the, The New Testament authors take pains to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was witnessed by lots of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul gives us a kind of creed, that which I received I passed on to you, uh, that Christ was uh, died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, and then he appeared first to the apostles and then it says to some great crowds in the hundreds. The New Testament authors want us to understand that Jesus appeared to people in his resurrection. As we'll talk about in just a minute, he appeared to the women, he appeared to the disciples, when uh, the, the Apostle John wrote his first letter, we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he begins it with this language that harkens back to creation. Uh, that which was from the beginning, uh, that which we've seen, uh, which we've touched, which our eyes beheld. Um, he's talking about Jesus. We saw him, we touched him, we experienced him. That, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Saying this is not pie in the sky, timeless truths. He says, we saw the resurrected Jesus, and now we have this feast before us of the story he saw himself inheriting, the story that he himself enacted in his own ministry, death, and resurrection, and the story that will unfold at his consummation. 
that the early church believed that Jesus actually appeared. We see this in Acts chapter 1, uh, where Jesus ascended and he had been a physical witness to many people. All of these people, again and again, in one voice, attest that Jesus was actually raised from the dead after actually being crucified, uh, given a, a very gruesome, public, humiliating death. They believed that he was raised from the dead. But it's worth asking, uh, are the resurrection accounts trustworthy? If it's the linchpin of Christian belief, can we actually believe that there's some historical merit to trusting that this stuff actually happened? Important question. Now, some people may say, look, the disciples just made it up. You know, it's wishful thinking. Wouldn't it have been so much better if he had actually been raised from the dead and they all lived according to this kind of fantasy. Some people just say they made it up. But if they're going to make it up, you think at the very least they're going to get their story straight. That we have four gospel accounts that don't have slight variances among them. They're going to make sure that the most credible witnesses are the ones who are attesting to his resurrection. So you certainly wouldn't include the fact in the first century uh, Judaism that women were the first resur resurrection witnesses. If they're just making it up and they want to have an airtight case in first century, you just don't make women the eyewitnesses. I'm sorry, women. But in, in their world, you just wouldn't do that. You want, a, you want a man. You want a father. You want someone well-established who can list all of his bona fides as the witness to the resurrection. And yet the church include this, included this in their context, embarrassing detail that it was the women who were first to witness the resurrected Jesus. And if they're just making it up, you think at least they're going to make themselves look good in the process. But what do we see in the disciples? They're, they're ashamed of their behavior over the last week. They are terrified about what's, about what's about to go down for them. They killed Jesus. Are they next? And they're very slow to believe. Mark's gospel uh, in Mark chapter 15 ends with the disciples running away terrified. If, if the, the gospel accounts are thought to be made up, they certainly didn't do themselves any favors and didn't make the most in their cultural context of arguing, making a good historical argument. It actually, these, these variances between the gospel, the presence of the women, and just how terrible the disciples look actually helps lend credibility to the case that something like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead actually happened. Well, other people might say, well, the disciples were probably just hallucinating or projecting their hopes about Jesus, and so they believed in the resurrection. It was legitimate belief, but the resurrection itself was not true. Well, a couple of basic arguments undermine this. One, absolutely no one expected the resurrection. Nobody expected that there was a sequel after death. There was not any kind of precedent that they could go on. And so if they were trying, if they were hallucinating, they were hallucinating, there was no historical precedent for what they were getting after. And again, the second thing shows us that they were not in a state of mind to be making this stuff up. They were ashamed, they were slow to believe, even in the presence of the resurrected Christ, uh, they were slow to believe that he had actually been raised from the dead. The, the hallucination argument just doesn't carry explanatory power, especially for what each of them did next. Because following the resurrection of Jesus, 10 of the 12 remaining apostles die as martyrs, Peter crucified upside down. You don't see it through to the point of death if you're hallucinating, if you're just making it up because you think it makes for a good story. 
If the resurrection is not true, how do we make sense of the phenomenon of the explosion of the Jesus movement in the first century A.D.? Uh, N.T. Wright, some of you are unsurprised I'm going here. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his uh, really great book, Surprised by Hope, which you should all read, uh, talks about seven major changes to the way that first century Jews thought about the topic of resurrection following what happened with Jesus. The the topic of resurrection was one that was of great interest in the first century and one that was hotly debated. Uh, The Pharisaical sect believed that there would be, at the end of history, a general resurrection from the dead. Dead people would come back to life. The Sadducees uh, were a group that Jesus argued with a lot. They did not believe that there would be any kind of resurrection. But this was like, kind of like when you get together with your Reformed or Presbyterian friends and they want to debate Calvinism and Arminianism and the conversation never ends. This is kind of what it was like talking resurrection in the first century. But as N.T. Wright points out, there were seven major mutations or ways in which people in the first century started talking about, uh, talked about the, the theme of resurrection. And these shifts, these mutations, beg the question, from an historical perspective, how do we explain the mutations? How, on a huge scale, tons and tons of documents and historical accounts of what people purported to believe, we have to have some kind of explanation for why a huge group of people started believing differently than they previously did. Seven mutations. The first is, has to do with um, before the incarnation of Jesus, there's, pr- there's tremendous diversity about what happens after people die. Okay, are you tracking with me? A lot of people have different thoughts about what happens after you die. What is, what is y- the hope of the people of Yahweh? Well, in the first two centuries, uh, Jewish Christians all of a sudden have very uniform thinking about what happens after you die. That it was this two-stage process. You die and are somehow with Jesus, and then later in history, there will be a resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Okay? Nod your head if you kind of understand what I'm saying, okay? There's diversity of thought to uniformity of thought. All of a sudden, a lot of people start telling the same story. How did that happen? A second mutation that happens is the resurrection moves from being this peripheral argument among certain groups of people to being the, the, the linchpin, the very center of hope and belief for large groups of Jewish believers. It moves from being at the edge to being at the very center. Why would this happen? In fact, it's so interesting. In the second century, there was a pagan doctor by the name of Galen who, writing to another uh, Roman doctor, described the uniqueness of Christians in two ways. One, they had sexual restraint, and two, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. Those were the two hallmarks of early Christian practice to the second century pagan Dr. Galen. A third mutation in the way that Jewish believers talked about future hope was they had this previously this vague idea of what resurrected bodies would be like to all of a sudden having this very specific description of what resurrected bodies would be like. It's almost as if they saw someone who had been raised from the dead. Jesus, if you'll, if you'll pay attention to the gospel accounts that include his post-resurrection appearances, has clearly a physical body because he's eating, he's drinking, Thomas can touch the wounds in his hands and his side, and yet he's also walking through walls, and he's disappearing from the side of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He has clearly a physical body, and yet it's a transformed physical body. 
all of a sudden this becomes the norm for how Jewish believers are talking about what resurrected bodies will be like. This is a shift. How do you explain it? A fourth mutation, uh, again, there was diversity of thought. There was, there was a lot of different ways that people were thinking, but people were largely agreed on the idea that the resurrection would be a one-time event. They're thinking the resurrection is going to be at the end of history, this one-time thing that happens. All of a sudden, we hear resurrection being talked about as a split event. One time for Jesus in the middle of history, and then when he returns, uh, all who trust in him. They've, they've split up the event in their conversations. And it's happening on a very broad scale. That's a mutation. Uh, the a fifth shift in the theme of talking about resurrection was previously it was something that you are waiting on. Like you're waiting for your bus or your train or your plane. We're just waiting for it to happen. And yet all of a sudden in the first centuries there's this sense of we're no longer just waiting. But we're working in anticipation of the renewal and the resurrection that is to come. It actually gave them a sense of purpose in the present, not just something that they were waiting for. A sixth really interesting thing that happens, this mutation, is resurrection in Jewish circles was often talked about in terms of a metaphor. Primarily, it was used as a metaphor for the end of exile. The people of, uh, of Israel and the northern tribes had been uh, exiled to As in Assyria and scattered all throughout the Assyrian Empire. The people of Judah had been exiled to Babylon and scattered all about. They talked about resurrection. Think about Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, like God reanimating his people and bringing them back to the temple. Even though they were now back in their land, they would use the language of resurrection to describe the idea that their foreign oppressors would be thrown off, that the Romans would no longer be there, or the Greeks before them. All of a sudden, the idea of resurrection moves from being a metaphor to being something quite literal, the actual resurrection of bodies. And this is, again, a mutation. And then the seventh mutation, which was, which was uh, to everyone's surprise, First of all, no one expected that a Messiah would suffer and die, and certainly no one expected that the Messiah would be raised again to new life. And yet the concept of resurrection is uniformly tied to the idea of Messiahship. Okay, seven big shifts in a large group of people in a short period of time. If you want to make a phenomenolo phenomenological argument, like you, you have to say, how did this happen? If there were not some kind of precipitating event, how does this large group of people who likes to argue about lots of things suddenly have uniform thinking on the matter? Truth is, they believed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and that changed everything. N.T. Wright. He said, because of the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah, we find the development of the very early belief that Jesus is Lord and that therefore Caesar is not the resurrection both of Jesus and then in the future of his people is the foundation of the Christian stance on allegiance to a different king, a different lord. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant, and the point of the resurrection is that death has been defeated. Resurrection is not a redescription of death. It is its overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. Despite the sneers and slurs of some, it was those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were burned at the stake and who were thrown to the lions. 
Resurrection was never a way of settling down and becoming respectable. Resurrection was always bound to get you in trouble, and it regularly did. Why did the early Christians modify the Jewish Jewish resurrection language in these seven ways and do it with such consistency? Well, when we ask them, they of course reply that they did it because of what they believe had happened to Jesus on the third day after he died. As a result of the resurrection, people's lives were transformed and people's lives are being transformed. As a result of the resurrection, I can trust in everything that Jesus said about himself. Because he was raised from the dead, I believe that he was right when he said that he's the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through him. I believe that he's right in what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, giving us this, this like north star, this compass for us ethically. I think that Jesus was right in John 15, 5 when he said, if you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I believe the truest sense of flourishing and hope in life is to have an abiding relationship in Jesus. This is true because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, I can trust in God's promises that the earth itself is going to be made new. That sin and death and injustice will finally be dealt with. Those things that have sparked such deep moral outrage in recent years. The deep grief that each of us feel in our heart when we we learned that a, a baby died before it had a chance. We can trust because of the resurrection that God's promises are going to be made good on. That one day he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. As a result of the resurrection, we can believe that the dead in Christ will rise. Some of you will remember standing at Joe and Beverly's service, a couple in our community who's, who's uh, killed and went to be with Jesus, and the injustice of their, the, the early end to their life just felt so present. And yet Joe and Beth will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. Because of the resurrection, I can live a life that's no longer bound or defined by my sin. Paul said, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can count ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead through the Holy Spirit lives in us. It's because of the resurrection. It's not wishful thinking. And because of the resurrection, I can endure hardship because even death cannot separate me from the love of God. Paul, who was martyred, said, for I'm convinced that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God. Oh, how does it go? Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ my Lord. Because of the resurrection, we have legitimate grounds for belief. And it was because of the resurrection that those first witnesses died in testimony of it. Because the weapon of the tyrant could not be ultimately used against them and could not ultimately silence their voice. It was in hope of the resurrection attested to by Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. But resurrection was not the end of this grand sweeping narrative of the victory of God. In Acts chapter 1, we see the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And after he ascends, the angel says, this same Jesus who's been taken from you will return to you in the same way that you've seen him go. 
The church understood that the, the ascension of Jesus was not just a fancy elevator ride to heaven. Uh, nor was it Jesus' retirement. He still had work to do. The ascension was Jesus' glorious return to heaven, to the presence of the Father and the Spirit, having done the work that he came to do. And if you're into graphic novels, you need to, in this frame, like this, this headspace, go and read Revelation chapter 5, where all of heaven is in mourning. Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll, to unveil the promises of God? And all of heaven is weeping. And John says in his vision, I saw there one looking like a lamb who had been slain. All of heaven erupts in worship. He is worthy to open the scroll, to un unfurl the promises of God. The ascension is not his elevator ride. It's not his fancy retirement party. It's Jesus returning in victory to the presence of his Father. To sit at the right hand of the Father is, of course, not a literal description. Uh, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Only in the Lord Jesus, beyond our comprehension, uh, is, is in there that God had a physical body. Jesus maintains his physical body as part of the Trinity. And to sit at the right hand is figurative language to say that the Father has appointed him heir of all things, as Hebrews 1 said. As Philippians 2 says that uh, he's given him the name that his name every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth will bow and say that he is Lord. Uh, he's, at, to the, say at the, he's at the right hand of the Father to say that the Father has exalted him. He's, he's exalted to this place of authority. And he's active in ruling and extending his authority over all the earth. My bishop, Todd Hunter, said that Jesus is now leading the most substantive, interesting, and consequential life imaginable. What is Jesus doing in heaven right now? First, He's interceding for us. Man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering, who knows what it's like to be tempted in every way and yet without sin, is interceding for us. St. Bonaventure said, He ascended so that, seated at the right hand of majesty, he might show to the glorious face of his Father the scars of the wounds which he suffered for us. In Hebrews 7, it says, Now at the right hand of the Father, he is able to save completely those who trust in him because he always lives to intercede for them. He lives to intercede for us. When someone asks you to pray for them, they're asking you to intercede for them. What is Jesus doing now at the right hand of the Father? He is praying for you. And he is praying for me. And when our sins condemn us, when our conscience strikes us, we remember that at the right hand of the Father, Jesus presents the scars that he suffered for our salvation. And remember, I have an advocate in heaven. He intercedes for me. What is Jesus doing in heaven? He's sending us the Holy Spirit. Cyril of Jerusalem said, Do not think that because he is absent in the flesh, flesh he is therefore absent in the Spirit. He's here. In the midst of us, listening to what is said of him, seeing our thoughts, searching our hearts and souls, he's ready even now to present all of you as you come forward for baptism in the Holy Spirit to the Father. Jesus said in John 16, Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 
praying for us at the right hand of the Father and appreciating what it is to be human, Jesus knows that we need a power that matches the demands and the invitations he's placed on us. And so he sends the Holy Spirit. We should ask, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, we should ask for the, an increase of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus now is no longer limited by physical geography and time and space, but is available by the Holy Spirit to all who trust in him. What is he doing as he lives the most substantive, interesting, and consequential life imaginable? He's interceding for us. He's sending the Spirit. And finally, he's awaiting the consummation of his kingdom. Second Peter. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some consider slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is interceding for us. He's sending the Spirit to us, and he's waiting and preparing to consummate his kingdom. He's wisely guiding all of creation toward its intended end, toward a good, good end. This is Christian hope. This is what the, the believers suffered for, that in the middle of history, God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ and beyond our comprehension, suffered and died for us. All of the sin and shame and anger and hatred of the world, we put on him. We sinned ourselves onto him on the cross, and yet he offered us his forgiveness and freedom through his own resurrection. And it was his resurrection that was given to us as a gift, as a seal, as a promise of all that he would do when he came and returned as he promised to consummate the kingdom. And it's this hope that enables us to carry on. It's this hope that enables us to endure suffering, to grieve, but to grieve not as the world grieves. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we have hope. And this is not the end of the story. For Peter and 2 Peter, the, 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 the advocation, the encouragement after that is so, what kind of lives should you live as you wait? You should repent. You should be ready. You should be on your toes because he's going to come like a thief in the night. And in view of all of the griefs that our community has borne and the world has borne, in view of the injustices that continue to go on, as we await for his coming, we pray that he would hasten that day. We pray, come Lord Jesus, the last prayer of the Bible. And so today, quite simply, as we come to the table, I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to trust in him. There's, there's good cause, there's objective reasons to trust in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want to remind you to endure. His spirit is present. Jesus is advocating for you. I want to commend you that you would worship, that you'd honor him. Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father, having done for us what was needed to procure our salvation. And I also want to encourage you not to give up hope in the middle of what you're going through. Uh, if, if it's not okay, it's not the end. And things right now are not okay, so we know that it is not the end. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray together. Lord, it, I, I was struck this week thinking about my own distance to your incarnation and Abraham's distance to you, how many people must have thought, like, are we just making all of this up? 
Is, is God ever going to do anything? And I just confess, Lord, sometimes it's just easier to, to wonder. It's easier not to believe. There is evidence to the contrary, and yet we return this morning to that monument in the desert, to that reminder in the middle of history that something happened that changed everything. Something happened that literally changed the course of human history, and we believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for us and that you were actually raised from the dead. For anyone to believe that anymore requires a miracle. And for us to continue believing, Lord, we need the power of your Holy Spirit active in our lives. And so as we come to the table, Lord Jesus, we remind ourselves and we remind our souls that you are even more present in this room than we are, but that we ask that you would make us aware of your presence. Through no theatrics, through no emotional coercion, just the presentation of the truth and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, we're asking you to do a work of, of generating and regenerating faith of giving us hope in the middle of despair, of giving us comfort in the middle of grief, giving us assurance in the middle of doubt that you who have been faithful in the past will be, are faithful now and will be faithful forever. And so, Lord, we do believe you and yet help our unbelief. We do love you and yet help us to love you even more. So we come to the table, Lord, would you take these ordinary elements, this bread and this juice, would you pour out your spirit on it and make it so much more than just that for us? May it be a means by which we experience the power of the resurrected Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We need you and we're counting on a breakthrough from you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.